0: I tend to, on an annual business meeting day, uh, pick a passage that might um, be more about, say, the life of the church or where we're at, Uh, but I I think it just so happens that this is a perfect passage to be in when to talk about the life of the church. Now, really, we're just going to get through, I think, um, (laughs) the one verse, but uh, I want to give you the lay of the land from verses 11 through 16, It's a series of five questions, we're just going to answer the first one, but I'll give you the questions and the answers, this is just for the overall context, but I think it does, again, help frame uh, our understanding of church and what we are doing here, even this morning. When you ask the question, what did God do for the church's unity, the primary answer he gives, we talked before about the spiritual gifts two weeks ago. That, that in a general sense God has gifted us with what we need to attain to unity, but specifically Paul had something in mind, and and what he had in mind were actually the gifts in verse 11 of apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. That for the unity of the church God specifically gave God gifted leaders. Now you ask the next question there. Then if that's what he, uh, what what he gave, well. Why did God give spiritual leaders to the church? And the answer is going to be in verse 12 that he gave them to equip the church to be the church, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. They are not to, we don't get to a unified church by everyone just, let's say, following the leadership or expecting the leaders to do everything. Some churches do run like that, but here it's very clear, if you want unity in the church, It is the leadership who must equip the church to be the church. What's God's ultimate goal for the church? We find that in verse 13, for all of us to reach Christ-like maturity until we all attain to the unity of the faith and knowledge of the Son of God to mature uh, manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. In other words, the goal of our ministries is for each one of us to attain to full Christ-likeness. We will not attain that, but it is still a goal. We we will attain it one day in heaven. Let's actually let me correct myself. But um, there's no church on the face of the planet now that can say we have attained this goal, where every member and every participant of our church is fully like Christ. But that is still a goal. Notice that that that's in a sense impossible in an earthly uh, manner for sinners to to reach that status, and yet it is still a goal we strive for. Even if something only fulfilled in heaven, yet we still strive for that. That's God's goal. Uh, What is God trying to prevent in the church? What hinders us reaching that goal? And Paul mentions that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. When we get to that, we'll talk about this. But there are distractions and diversions from the goal, and Paul is saying if you are equipped by godly leaders, you will avoid the pitfalls of being distracted and diverted from this goal of being Christ-like. The church's agenda could be filled with the many things that have nothing to do with Christ-likeness and maturing. And so uh, Paul fully believes if your leadership is spiritually focused and is equipping the church to be the church for the goal of reaching Christ like maturity, you won't get distracted by all the things that are out there. And boy, there are a lot of distractions. Instead, what God is trying to promote, what God is trying to promote instead is growing together. And we see that in verse 15 and 16 that as we speak the truth in love, we grow up in every way into Christ-likeness. There's an organic process of growth. It's not programmatic, you could say. It's not something where you're churning out a product and the church is just a factory and we churn out, cookie, churn out cookie-cutter Christians, but instead in an organic process where we are not all the same body part, we come together, we grow, and we build ourselves up. And we'll find that love um, is one of these predominant um, themes in the Bible. For that, So that's, that's kind of where we're going, but today we're just going to talk about uh, what God did for the church. He gave God-gifted leaders. He gave spiritual leaders, and 1 Corinthians 12, 28 kind of reflects on that as well when it talks about how first he gave the apostles and the prophets and the teachers. It's the same kind of idea, and we, we need to make a distinction up front. That when it says he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers... Um, <clears throat> He's not necessarily talking about, let's say, the office of these roles, but the gifting of these roles. So there is an office of apostle. We'll get to that in a second. There's an office of pastor. And we see the qualifications, let's say, in 1 Timothy chapter 3. But that's different than saying you have giftings of a shepherd's heart. You have a gifting of teaching. You may not be the teacher a pastor, teacher, but you have a gifting for that. So there's a little bit of a distinction. Uh, Hopefully it'll become a little bit more clear as we go on between, say, the office and the gift. Now we come to the first gift, the first kind of spiritual leadership gift that God gives, and it is the apostle. Literally, the word apostle means sent one. So if you're familiar with the word epistle, epistle means letter in Greek. Apostle is not so much different, and it's because they do have a similarity. Um, uh, An epistle is like a sent message. An apostle is a sent person. So literally, apostle means a sent person, but in Greek, um, it means a a man or woman that is specifically sent on a mission or with a purpose by someone else. Now, there's no Greek word that's, that's translated missionary in English. Again, the Bible, the New Testament, uh, I should say, was written in Greek. So all the words you're seeing in your English Bible are translations. Um, but if you look for the word missionary, you don't find it in almost any English translation that I know of. And there's no Greek word that would be translated that way. Actually, though, apostle comes closest to communicating the idea of a missionary. So if there was a word that I would translate missionary um, in the New Testament, it would be the word apostle. But here we do want to make a distinction. There's what you might call apostles with a capital A and apostles with a lowercase a. The apostles with a capital A would be like the original disciples. They had to be an eyewitness, and um, they're made up or composed of those 12, 12 minus 1 plus 1 plus 1, all right? So you had 12 disciples of Jesus who walked with him and ministered uh, to them. One of them was Judas Iscariot. He's not considered an apostle, of course, because he betrayed Jesus, and he uh, killed himself. But then in Acts 126, what do they do? They added... Matthias, and he becomes the 12th uh, disciple or apostle, and these 12 are considered to be of a special or unique class. I mean, they are an Apostles with a capital A, not just a a general sent person of the church, which we'll see, talk about just in a second, but these are specially commissioned men who were um, uh, eyewitnesses and ministers uh, with the Lord Jesus. Paul is sort of in a unique class because he was, as he calls himself, one untimely born. But he is part of that kind of capital A apostles, even though he is sort of um, different in that he didn't directly minister with Jesus. He encountered Jesus on on the road to Damascus. Um, But those 13, you could say, would be of the special unique class of apostles, capital um, A. But you do have others in the Bible considered to be an apostle like Barnabas. In Acts 14, 14, um, the writer of Acts, Luke, calls Barnabas and Paul both apostles. You also have mentions of other men like Apollos being an apostle and James, the half-brother of Jesus, being called an apostle. So what Paul is talking about here then is more like that second class of lowercase a apostles. Um, Now, that gifting, which we'll expand on in a second, was, of course, applicable to the capital A apostles. So they obviously had that gift, but um, that is a separate class. You also had these apostles, lowercase a, um, you could say, who are essentially church planters. They form uh, a bridge as we see in the book of Acts, between the original apostles and the elders slash pastors. And if I say elders and pastors, they are interchangeable as far as the New Testament is concerned. Um, It's the same position or person. So the lowercase a, apostles, seem to form a bridge between the capital A, you know, 13 apostles, and the elders and pastors of a local church. It's, exact, it's actually what we see in the book of Acts. Now, I, um, for sake of time, um, I, I'm going to kind of just do a, a gloss over of it, but you can, you know, search this out for yourself. But essentially, in Acts chapter 1 through 11, it's sort of its own section. It's the life of the early church, the birth of the church, Jerusalem and Judea, um, and you're just starting to get out into the Gentile word. And there, whenever you see the word apostles it almost certainly means the original disciples of Jesus plus Matthias. So you have a passage that makes a distinction that in Acts 9.27, that Barnabas uh, was not considered an apostle, even though in Acts 14.14 he is. Barnabas brings someone to the apostles, but it doesn't sound like he himself is one. So Acts 11 and on, there's a transition transition in the book of Acts where the gospel, it goes out into the Gentile world, um, and there's a Gentile mission, partially because there's persecution happening, and they're being driven out, but also because there is a growing ministry that the Gentiles, the gospel is being opened to the Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles don't primarily live in, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. They live in the uttermost parts of the world. And so Barnabas is uh, specially commissioned to go and take the gospel out to the Gentiles and also to find a man by the name of Paul and see uh, what the stories have been about him and whether they're true or not. So the Gentiles start getting saved. Paul and Barnabas are off on their missionary adventures. Starting from Acts 14, 14 and on, Barnabas and Paul are both considered Apostles. And if you read Acts 14 through 16, you always see the word apostle coupled with the word elder. Apostles and elders, apostles and elders, apostles and elders. So if you look through Acts 14 through 16, chapter 14, 15, 16, apostles and elders, apostles and elders. Before that, it was just apostles. Now, or and elders referred to the leadership of the Jews. Actually, Um, so you see apostles and elders, apostles and elders. And this is because churches are being planted by apostles. And then those churches are appointing elders to be uh, leaders of those churches. And those elders were then expected to shepherd the flock. And the apostles, or you know, their church planters, they would move on to the next region, do the same thing all over again. So you have apostles and elders, Acts 14 through 16, um, You essentially have the idea of apostle in the book of Acts fade out after that. And you talk more and more about elders. And by Acts 20, you have enough churches and elders that they are definitely seen. Pastors are definitely seen as the overseer of local churches. They are gathered together um, to have discussions with the apostles. The apostles are sort of a giving Commissions now to the elders. So you see this transition from the capital A apostles to these lowercase a apostles to pastors in the local church. So the gift of apostleship is uh, seems to be very important in the initial establishment and foundation of these churches. Now, we here at ICC, we don't interpret the gift of apostles to be something that continues Past the time of the early church um, in a a broad sense, either the capital A apostle or the lowercase a apostle. But you could say that perhaps the essence of the gift of apostleship, if it is present today, is something more like and more closely associated with those who are gifted in church planting especially in unchurched areas of the world. That is what apostles did is they planted churches in unreached areas of the world. So you might consider that many of what we call missionaries have this kind of, of gifting. So that you know that might be fair. Um, but we would definitely say that the office of like an apostle, um, and there are whole you know ministries that, that are very much surrounding this idea of an apostle, we wouldn't agree with that, especially since, The main thrust of it is that they plant churches. And, of course, that's necessary for the unity of a church because they're planting churches to begin with. Next, you have the apostles. He gave the apostles and the prophets. Um, Now, it was often the case that people could have multiple gifts. So it's not that you're just the healing Uh, gifts you're just the tongues you're just the administration (laughs) oftentimes there's blending of gifts so you can clearly uh, see in the new testament that the capital a apostles say like peter was also a prophet i mean he wrote scripture he spoke he received scripture from the holy spirit and he communicated that to others and so there's some overlap of of those kind of giftings. so you know someone could have the gift of prophecy and the, the gift of you know maybe tongues or something Um, But here, specifically, we are talking about what was, why this was necessary for the unity, the formation and the unity of the early church. Um, The gift of prophecy was uh, something that in the Old Testament was maybe primarily defined by giving divine authoritative proclamations by inspiration of the Spirit. Sometimes the Old Testament prophecies were predictive. And that's the way we tend to think of prophecies you're telling me something about the future. But that wasn't always the case. Um, But yes, there were certainly uh, many prophecies in the Old Testament that's telling what God is going to do before it happened. Prophets in the Old Testament, they often uttered judgments about the consequences of the sins of the people. And so, the New Testament prophecy, while it does have some elements of telling what the future was going to be like, of course, and of course, uttering judgments and the consequences of sin, the New Testament gift of prophecy as a gift to the early church was more about having this positive effect of offering encouragement and edification. You don't have to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 14, um, Paul is actually talking about the abuse of the spiritual gifts and the wrong ways to use it. Um, but he says this about the gift of prophecy uh, at uh, 1 Corinthians 14 3. He says On the other hand, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. Verse 33 um, uh, 1 Corinthians 14, 31 I'm sorry uh, for you can all prophesy one by one so that all may learn and all be encouraged. So the gift of prophecy, the gift of it, not just um, the, a, a prophet, but the gift of prophecy in the New Testament um, seemed to be maybe a little bit less doom and gloom, which, to be honest, when you read a lot of the Old Testament prophecies, it's a little bit depressing. Now, usually there's always a lot of bad news and then good news. Um, But here, you really get the sense that the prophesying here is for for building up. It's got a little bit different goal to it um, than in the Old Testament. So there are some differences, but certainly we're talking about authoritative declarations. We're talking about men and even women, because women were also uh, gifted uh, with this spiritual gift. They were giving authoritative divine proclamations by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Um, and they would be held to the same judgments, let's say, of if you utter false, you know, statements and false declarations, then you would be a false prophet. Uh, But there is a little bit of difference in the New Testament there that the prophetic gifts seem to be a little bit more um, encouraging. (laughs) Uh, Why did the early church need this gift of prophecy at all? Well, one reason is that while the early church already had the Old Testament scriptures, they needed authoritative exposition and interpretation of the Old Testament passages. So these prophets um, were giving, uh, you you could say, uh, edifications in the church, and it would have to be biblical. Of course, it wasn't just going to be something, you know, totally unrelated to God, just talking about You know, the weather's going to be like this tomorrow or the score of the baseball game or something. I mean, they're obviously going to be talking about biblical things. So uh, one reason there was uh, prophecy in the early church is that the Old Testament needed to be exposited. It needed to be proclaimed and declared. Um, But of course, you also had no New Testament yet. I mean, the New Testament is being written. So you have uh, prophetic statements that are going to end up being New Testament scripture. Uh, and that is what is written down, but you, there's must be, have been prophecies also uttered that were not written in Scripture, equally as authoritative, but not um, in the, it needs to be written down for all the churches and all the ages since. It doesn't make it any less divine, or less authoritative. Uh, all that to say that uh, there was plenty of reasons that the New Testament church, especially early on, needed this gift of prophecy. Um, So like with the gift of apostleship um, here at ICC, we don't have the expectation um, that there are prophets, um, the office of it. Uh, We're also, you know, fairly um, sure, at least again, as far as the ICC teaching distinctive, that we don't expect new prophecies and therefore no new prophets because we do have the close of the canon of scripture. I mean, John is very clear in Revelation 22 that if anyone adds to the words of this book, let all the curses of this book fall upon him, right, in Revelation 22. So uh, how do you add to this book? When you say, you know, the Lord told me, you know, X, Y, and Z. Well, should I be writing that down? The Lord told you? Is this authoritative and binding for the consciences and for the church? Then it should be written down. Well, you're adding to scripture, um, and so that's that's our interpretation of it. Some churches have a little bit different take. Um, they would make distinctions about some prophecies as being, you know, possibly wrong, and they point to Agabus and things. But I don't. I, I I think it's a not a good road to go down where you can say that there's Holy Spirit inspired prophecy that could be wrong or potentially wrong, and so think it's much simpler to say that those are something different. It's not prophecy. You get some kind of insight or you you feel some kind of uh, inclination from the Lord, uh, maybe a lot of things. I just don't think I'd call it prophecy. Anyway, we can talk about that at the business meeting or not. Okay. Um, (laughs) um, Now, even while I just said, I don't think there is uh, that, that, idea of a prophet existing now, I do think maybe like with apostleship, the essence of the gift of prophecy. So if the spiritual gift of prophecy is something that persists in the church today. Just like with apostleship, it's not what you think. It's like church planting, like that would be the spiritual gift. Um, I, I think here the gift of prophecy, if it does persist into today, it would be seen in the gifting of men and women to preach the completed revelation of God's word effectively and powerfully. That must have been some of what the prophecy was in uh, the the New Testament. I think only apostles, you know, could write scripture, you know, Holy Spirit-inspired scripture. That's one thing, but there was men and women who prophesied, and they were proclaiming truth about God into the life of these newborn baby churches. Well, I think if that gift does persist today, it is in Uh, men and women who can um, effectively and powerfully deliver, understand and deliver the word of God to to congregations. So um, that is the gift of prophets. Next, we have the evangelist. Now, this word evangelist only comes up twice in the entire New Testament. It's a title in Acts 21.8, where Philip, one of the disciples of Jesus and an apostle of the early church, Philip is called the evangelist. Um, it's also it comes up another time where Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 5, do the work of an evangelist. Well, what is evangelist? What does that even mean? Well, I know it doesn't look anything like the word gospel, but literally evangelist, if you're really going to bring it into English, you would bring it into English as gospelist. Why? Well, Evangel in Greek means good message, right? Good message. The EV part means good, uh, and the angel means message. Remember, an angelos, an angel is a messenger, so that's the connection there. Um, So good message. Evangel means good message. The English word gospel comes from Old English, the word God, which doesn't mean God, it means good, and spell meaning story or message. So the word gospel means good message or good news. So evangel and gospel, they mean the same thing. So an evangelist is a gospelist, if that makes sense. Someone who just can't help talking about the gospel. Perhaps since Philip is identified with this gift, it's helpful to remember what happened to him um acts chapter 8 if you remember the lord used him to minister to an ethiopian eunuch the lord angel of the lord said to philip rise you go this way to <laughs> on this road and just just go on it <laughs> it's a desert by the way but just walk what does philip do he goes first requirement for an evangelist obedience he rose and went And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, who's an official, court official of the queen of the Ethiopians. He's on his chariot. And what's he doing? He's reading the scroll of Isaiah. (laughs) And the spirit said to Philip, you know, go over and join his chariot. So what does Philip do? He obeys. It's the first role or first duty of an evangelist. You just obey. So Philip ran to him, heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, hey, do you understand what you're reading? (laughs) And the man says, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invites Philip to join him up on his um, carriage. And they read the scriptures. And Philip, it says, open his mouth. And beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news, the evangel, the gospel about Jesus. And then, you know, the rest, he says, well, what? Can I get baptized right now? And you got to imagine, this is a court official, and, and essentially, Philip says, well, there, you know, there's some water over here. <laughs> yeah, that's good enough. Just water on the side of the road. And he gets baptized. So um, uh, the obedient, eager to talk about Jesus, no matter who or where, attitude of Philip is that which encompasses the evangelist. Is someone who is simply obeying the call of Jesus, to go wherever Jesus says, whether that's the shopping mall or to the, you know, to, the, um, to the park, and just talk about the life, death, resurrection of Jesus Christ, how he laid down his life for sinners, how he was the son of God and son of man, all those things. Um, and, and he just went wherever the Lord told him to go. Um, this gift doesn't seem to entail a lot of follow-up, because almost immediately, Philip just disappears from the unique site and is taken elsewhere. I mean, it's a miraculous, you know, transportation, actually. Um, but he's not the follow-up guy. Who's the follow-up guy? Well, that's the apostles. you got evangelists. He comes into an area. He's preaching the gospel. you got a bunch of Christians. And you call an apostle. We need an apostle here to establish a church. And when that church was built up and encouraged by prophets who were declaring the word of God giving specific biblical authoritative proclamations to that church. It was built up and then they would appoint pastor teachers to take responsibility for the churches. Not apostles, not evangelists, not prophets, but pastor teachers were given the responsibility to oversee these churches. And that, of course, leads us to the last gift of the church's leadership, shepherds and teachers, or the word shepherd That's what pastor means. So you could say pastor, teachers there. Um, The way this is phrased in Greek is that these two gifts of pastoring and teaching are related. I won't get into all the grammatical nuances, but either this is one gift of the pastor-teacher or two interrelated gifts, pastors who must also be teachers. Either way, the expectation is that they go together and and one commentator Uh, Or a couple commentators say it this way. Every pastor is to be a teacher, although not every teacher needs to be a pastor. Um, Having said that, these are, again, gifts. These are gifts that pastors must have is the gift of pastoring and the gift of teaching. What is the gift of pastoring? One other word for pastoring is shepherding. Shepherding has to do with the care and meeting of needs of sheep. Jesus told Peter when he restored him to ministry in John 21, feed my lambs, shepherd my sheep, feed my sheep. This was the ultimate task that Jesus was giving to Peter as a, a future apostle, as one of the ones who would lay down a foundation for the church. As the one who had betrayed Jesus and needed to be restored, this is what was on Jesus' heart to tell Peter as his preeminent task, and it's shepherding. The same Peter would one day write, years later, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Peter, the same Peter will write, So I exhort the elders among you. Again, elders, pastors, overseers, all the same. you will receive the unfading crown of glory. I love, and you can ask Bing as well, but Peter's story and his arc is so incredible. Um, It's filled with so many ups and downs. Um, He's probably the most, in my opinion, the most three-dimensional character in the New Testament, meaning uh, where you get such different looks into his life, his failures and his successes and his growth and uh, everything in between, um, for him to call himself the one who's arguing with the other disciples about who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, for him to say, "I exhort you, that's a fellow, lowly under shepherd, of whom Jesus is the chief shepherd, shepherd the sheep, be humble." It's a great message and um it's one obviously that that peter it stuck with him after those words in john uh, chapter 21 shepherding we see it all over the new testament uh it is a self-sacrificial care for those who are weak for those who are lost and desperate those who are sick that is what a shepherd does um you know we'll actually talk a little bit more about that when we get in later to Ephesians 4. Teaching is not anything different than what you might think is a gift of being able to teach. It's being able to understand ideas and um, teach them to others so that they understand it as well. Some people are great learners, not good teachers. Um, But I think someone who's a good teacher is able to take a lot of information and uh, is able to clearly communicate it to others. Now, of course, this gift has specifically to do about understanding and applying the word of God to people's lives. Second Timothy 3, 16 and 17 um, says, all scripture is inspired by God or breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So the word of God has within it, everything a person needs to do all that God requires in terms of instruction and correction. You, you still need the Holy Spirit to empower you and so on. But as far as a, a, a book that gives you everything, this is that book. And you need people that can teach it and communicate it clearly. Um, this is now pastor teachers set off in a way that suggests that the pastor-teacher is something different in character and class than the apostles, the prophets, and evangelists. It's kind of grammatically a little bit distinct from those first three things. And I've already talked about how those three gifts are very important for the establishment, especially of those early churches. However, it is clear in the book of Acts and the way the rest of the New Testament unfolds that qualified Pastors are how churches are going to be sustained and grow in unity. Now, not to keep saying the point over again either, we are, I want to emphasize, talking about giftings and not offices. So, ICC, teaching distinctive, we affirm that the office of elder, overseer, pastor, again, interchangeable, is for men. 1 Timothy 3, 1 and 2, he must be the husband of one wife literally a one woman man there's a it's, it's a it's a male thing but this does not mean that a woman can't have a gift of caring for sheep or for teaching or for prophecy or even apostleship there are possible uh, women lowercase a apostles there's all the uppercase a, apostles were all men, but lowercase a, there's some indication that there may, be, may have been some women who might have been considered uh, apostles. So we're not saying that women cannot be gifted in these ways, and they were in the early church, um, but we would say the office of a pastor is something that is for men. Um, and uh, to be honest, we see that women are called to be you know, carers of the sheep and to even teach. We see that in Titus 2, 3, and 4, uh, that the older women are to teach the younger women. So, of course, we would expect them to be gifted, spiritually gifted in that. We also see examples in uh, the book of Acts of a a husband-wife or really a wife-husband duo, Priscilla and Aquila, uh, the wife usually being um, more prominent in terms of the, the way the text is laid out. So they don't have any formal title or office, you know, apostle, prophet, evangelist, but apparently they have the gift of teaching, possibly even shepherding when you read Acts 18. All that to say that these were certainly necessary early gifts for the establishment of this early church and for them to see, seek unity. There is a, it seems a distinction that the pastors um, and elders seem to be the, the way that um, that the church after the time of the apostles is going to be sustained and united, but we might see some analogous kinds of ministries now uh, or giftings of church planting, of proclaiming the word, of sharing the gospel um, here and now. So I, I don't want to immediately just dismiss that those gifts are not in effect now, but we've got to really understand what those gifts are actually about. Now, I want to use that as a segue to talk very briefly now about ICC. Um, I want to make just uh, three comments about the pastors here. <laughs> That's myself, Bing, uh, if he gets <laughs> reapproved for another three-year term, uh, and, and Pastor Chris. Um, I have been blessed to get to know them over the past uh, several years, being a little bit longer than Chris since uh, Chris got hired about six and a half years ago, I think. Um, and I've been very blessed to sit in many hours and hours and hours and hours and hours of meetings with them um, to shepherd the flock, um, to um, you know bring our experiences and personality to bear with each other, to not always agree on everything, um, to be thankful for their insights and wisdom, um, to you know, fight through some battles. I mean, some ones that stick out in my mind is when we're coming up with our divorce and remarriage policy um, in the wake of a church discipline regarding that. Um, time of COVID, it was, I think, instrumental and providential to have both uh, Bing and Chris as a leadership of this church. I've been very blessed. Um, they are two men that I, I think have the church's best interests in mind at at heart. Um, and that I can trust them uh, with that. I, I don't know that I can say that, or I, I, I don't say that lightly to say that I believe that these men would try to do everything they could for the best of this church. In the past few years, have been very discouraging when it comes to leadership in churches and scandals and all that sort of thing. I'll we'll talk a little bit about that at the business meeting. But I, I want to just make three quick comments. The first is based on 1 Timothy 3. You have a list of qualifications there of, of elders. And I've preached on that before not too long ago in the evening service. Um, but really what 1 Timothy 3 is saying when it talks about an overseer must be above reproach and sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, and so on and so forth. What is that really saying? What it's saying is how can you keep, how can you know that these are true of a, of a man without knowing the man. So the first thing I want to say is that we pastors of this church, we want to and we need to be known men. We need to be known by you. How can you know if we are these qualities and these qualifications unless you know us? We expect that. Almost every Single pastor and so-called man of God in the past few years, who has fallen from that position, and of which, unfortunately, I can give you a list. Almost every single one was put into a position where the results they garnered were mistaken for character and calling. In other words, because they could get a result, more money, bigger church, better programs, more radio shows, that that was mistaken for character. Gifting and talents were being blindly followed rather than tempered and tested by their churches to produce true wisdom and humility in the so-called man of God of a church. We cannot be distant from you, We don't want to be distant from you. We need to be held into account by you, you. This is for the church to hold pastors accountable to, And you cannot do that without asking you know, hard questions, without giving us a little bit of pushback. We'll get to how much is too much in just a second. But we need a communication with you. We need to be known men. Having said that, we can't be perfect men. my second point. Don't expect us to be perfect men. Again, Peter. I love Peter (laughs) because even as an apostle, I mean, it's one thing to say, you know, Peter was such a screw-up in the Gospels, and you think, man, he keeps putting his foot in his mouth, and you think, ah, but, you know, Jesus restored him, and, you know, after that, you know, he was well on the road to successful ministry. Well, then you have this little incident regarding the Judaizers. Uh, and, and, and Paul says this in Galatians chapter uh, 2, verse 11 through 14. And this is recorded in Holy Scripture. When Cephas, and that's, that's Peter, <laughs> okay? And, and he's almost like using this different name for Peter because it's like Peter's not acting very Peter-like. But when Cephas came, or maybe he is, (laughs) when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back, the Judaizers, and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with them so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, if you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? In other words, he calls Peter out for many things. I mean, think about it. Just in this one passage, what is the accusation against uh, Peter? One is that he is fearful of man. You know, he, was fear, he feared the circumcision party, the Judaizers. Not only that, he was a hypocrite. He was acting hypocritically with what he believed. Not only that, he was leading other people into hypocrisy. Barnabas, I mean, Barnabas knows his stuff, but it's Peter. If Peter does it, it must be right. And not only that, that he was a heretic. His conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel. That's false teaching, Peter was not a perfect apostle, not a perfect pastor. We aren't even as sanctified, and by we I mean being in in Chris. We aren't even as sanctified as Peter. Therefore, we can sure use some grace. You need to know us. You You need to understand if we are meeting these qualifications of an elder or pastor. But Don't be surprised if you find out we're not perfect. We can't be. And so be willing to extend to us some grace. Um, Paul captures it pretty well in 1 Timothy when he talks about how you should approach a a pastor. He says in 1 Timothy 5.17, there's um, honor that must be given for those who rule well or should be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, and then he says in verse 19, do not admit a charge against an elder except in, on the evidence of two or three witnesses. In other words, there is an expectation that pastors are going to make mistakes. But don't be too hasty. Make sure that other people can corroborate. But when you come to him, it is what? In the spirit of Matthew 18, which is a spirit of reconciliation. It's a spirit of winning your brother. But as for those who persist in sin, an elder Rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest may stand in fear. So, if if there is grace, but it's not that you put up with sin either. And I I don't think I've ever seen either of these men persist in sin. Um, But there is a grace, uh, a gracious way to approach us, a necessarily gracious way to approach us. We do need to be held into account uh, by you, but. Uh, don't expect us to be perfect men. Lastly, third point, we need to be, therefore, prayed for men. I love First Thessalonians 5.25. <laughs> A really simple one. Brothers, pray for us. <laughs> this is Paul. Brothers, pray for us. I mean, if Paul... Needed to be prayed for, and of course, there's other passages, you know, in the in the New Testament about asking for prayers, pastors asking for prayer. I just said that was so succinct. Brothers, pray for us. We we need prayer. I, I I've told this story many times. I, I used to early in ministry not think uh, when people asked me for prayer requests, say something, uh, you know, I'm I'm doing okay. I mean, um, I, I don't know, like I I kind of almost declined their desire to pray for me but now um i am so desperate i will beg you for prayers if you're if you're giving them i will take whatever prayer you can get because this is ministry isn't easy maybe it was easier back then maybe i was more you know clever and and able to you know carry the burden in the power of my own strength but the burden is too big and i'm too weak so i need prayers I'll say that uh, I am thankful that despite, you know, being Chris and I, being very different people in many ways, struggling in different ways, excelling in different ways, and the wisdom of God, he's brought very different people with different experiences, strengths, and weaknesses together to lead the church. And I'll say this, if the three of us can agree, despite being very different people with different backgrounds, it means that that agreement isn't superficial, (laughs) That unity isn't just a surface-level unity, but it's hard-earned, and it's biblically grounded to the best of our abilities. That's all we've ever strived to do. I, can, um, I, I wish sometimes you could be there in our, in our meetings, um, even, even the ones that are tough, if we could kind of you know keep people's privacy, because I, I, I'm not ashamed of, of, of who we are and how we try to wrestle and deal with things, and it isn't always you know, pretty. It's not a bunch of yes men in there. I'll tell you that. Anyone that thinks that that you know, Yuri's a senior pastor and just <laughs> surrounds himself with yes men. I mean, no, no, <laughs> not at all. And that's a good thing, because that's the last thing you need. Um, and you know me. I, I'm trying to. I try to kick that senior part of the senior pastor thing uh, away so that I can share the blame more. So I'm not trying to to be the guy um, that has to be. You know. Pleased in all of this. Anyway, we don't always get it right, I'll admit. We don't always get it right. And if in your eyes we have, despite everything we've done to try and avoid mistakes, done something that doesn't please you, I hope I can communicate to you all right now that we need you and we need your feedback. We need your prayers, yes, but we also need your concerns, Your thoughts, your ideas, we want to bring you into greater involvement. We want to share the burden of ministry because it isn't our ministry, me being in Chris. It's our ministry. We are here to serve you, we are here to care for you. So we need to hear from you. You don't need to just assume everything we do is right. That's not what submission means. Rather, knowing that we are trying our best and love you to tell us and give us a chance to explain if something is confusing. Give us a, an opportunity to show you our character. Um, give us a chance to apologize when we've made mistakes and point, point to Jesus. Give us that opportunity. Um, don't, don't suffer in silence. So we're going to have our annual business meeting just a moment. Um, we'll take a break. Maybe about 15 minutes or so, and then come back here at noon. Um, if you're not a member, we we're fine. If you want to s- stick around, we'd love to have you participate um, or witness the the meeting. You obviously can't vote in it, but uh, we'd love to to see you be a part of it um, and see what what's going on at ICC. But I'm gonna pray uh, pray, and then we'll sing the last hymn, and then 15 minutes, come back here. That's the plan. Okay. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, again for uh, this church, and I do thank you personally uh, for the leadership you've brought here, um, for the deacons, and for all the volunteers who serve, actually. Um, There are many who have made this ministry their ministry and brought it into their hearts, and for that I am endlessly grateful for because we are seeing the unity that the Spirit brings to a church when he is uh, ruling in our hearts and working in our hearts and empowering us by his giftings um, to do the work of the ministry. So thank you, Lord, for the Spirit's work here at ICC. I pray, Lord, that you would continue uh, that work of unifying us as we have uh, this meeting in just a moment. And then uh, beyond all that, that you would continue to build your church. Lord, it's the work you begun with those first apostles and, and prophets, Lord, and pastors and there in the Book of Acts in the early church, and here we are continuing their legacy. I hope and pray, uh, may we be faithful until the day the Lord comes. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and close with.